Well, good evening and a very warm welcome um, to our evening service here from Stornoway. We are grateful to you for, for joining us and uh, we do pray once again that God will bless to us his own word and our being together in this way uh, so that to the glory of his name we come to worship him. We're going to begin by praising him and our praise item to begin with is Psalm 47. Psalm number 47, that's from the Scottish Psalter on page 272 uh, of, of the psalm books. And verses 5 to 9, we're going to sing verses 5 to 9. The tune is Gainsborough. God is with shouts gone up, the Lord with trumpets sounding high. Sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise. Praise to our King, sing ye. For God is King of all the earth, with knowledge praise express. God rules the nations, God sits on his throne of holiness. And so on to the end of the psalm, Psalm 47. And at verse uh, 5, God is with shouts gone up. God is with shouts gone up. reading tonight is from uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, and chapter 4, and we can read through the whole chapter. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. We pray that God will follow with his blessing our reading of his word. Let's now join together in prayer. Let's call upon the Lord in prayer. Gracious and eternal Lord God Almighty, the one of whom we have been reading and singing through your word, we bless you tonight for your greatness, for the sovereignty of your rule, and for the exercise, O Lord, of that government which is yours in a way that fits with your purpose. And we thank you, O Lord, that as we, as your creatures, come to face you this evening in worship, that we are given this privilege, that we come before your very throne through Jesus Christ, O Lord. And as surely as we are reading off your throne in your word, Lord, help us, we pray, to understand as much as we can that we are before your throne now as we worship you. Not in the immediate sense in which those who inhabit heaven are before your throne, but nevertheless we approach you as our King. And we approach you as one who is worthy of our praise, worthy of the perfect praise of heaven itself that will go on through all eternity. We thank you, Lord, in your greatness that you have not looked beyond us, that you have not put us away from you, and in your greatness you have stooped down toward us, even as you said to your people Israel long ago through Moses, that you had heard their cry of affliction and had come down to rescue them. We ask, O Lord, that you would hear our cry this evening. We give, we give, give you thanks that we know that you have already descended into this world that we belong to in such a remarkable way. You have come in the person of your Son. You have taken not only our humanity to yourself, you have taken the sin of your people. You have taken their punishment, their curse. You have paid the price of their sin. You have provided a glorious and rich salvation. And we thank you tonight, Lord, that we, through faith in Christ, that we come to avail ourselves to hold and to possess that glorious salvation. We thank you too, Lord, for your wisdom, uh, the wisdom with which you govern the whole universe that you have created. We are so puny, O Lord, in your presence, and especially we are sinful and darkened in our minds by our sin. And yet in coming toward us, you have revealed to us, O Lord, that you are great also, uh, in compassion and in love. And we thank you tonight that we look to you as one who continues to behold his people in love and who holds them precious as his own people. And we pray, O Lord, that as we gather together with many others today to worship you, that we may be conscious, O Lord, not only of your greatness and almightiness and of your love, but of your constant interest in us, and of the way that you constantly continue to reach out toward us through the gospel and call us to yourself. Bless us then, Lord, we pray tonight. Bless us as we gather in this way once again. We do thank you again for this facility. And we thank you that we are able to be gathered together in this way, strange though it may be. But help us, Lord, we pray, not to get so used to it that we would rather this to being together physically. Uh, for we know from your word that this is the best position of all for us in this world, that we are assembled together and that we have the consciousness in being together, that we are together before the Lord. And yet, Lord, we give thanks for the way in which you have kept us and led us during these months. We pray that as the virus uh, seems to be increasing throughout our land and throughout the world, Lord, we ask that you would continue 
to protect us, to watch over us, to look after us. Uh, we pray that you would help us to see not only how serious the virus itself is, but also, O Lord, lead us, we pray, to see how serious our sin is. For these reminders that you give us in your providence through such great and grievous events as these have always by those to whom you have given wisdom through your Spirit been regarded as uh, true indicators of our relationship with you and our need of you. And we do, O Lord, pray tonight that you would teach us as a people how much we do need you. You have demonstrated, Lord, to us even uh, three, through these past months how impossible it is for ourselves as human beings to control our own lives, to be in charge of our own destiny, let alone our day-to-day -day practice. But we give thanks, Lord, that you are the one who is able to do this, who has that ability and capacity always. We pray that you would teach us even anew tonight, through your word, through the blessing that we seek from your spirit, to give ourselves anew into your governorship and into your control, and to place ourselves willingly under your lordship. Teach us, we pray, as a people, uh, teach our people, our nation, uh, these great principles and practices that your word sets before us. Lord, we pray that many will come to reflect deeply and seriously upon their lives, upon eternal matters, upon their relation to you, to the gospel, to your truth, to your church. And help us, we pray, as your people, to be faithful in representing you, to be faithful in uh, calling uh, the the gospel for what it is, the light of your truth, and help us to maintain it and to preserve it, to defend it, to commend it. We ask, O oh Lord, that through your Spirit many will be blessed, through the testimony of your word and the witness of your people. We remember once again before you those who have affliction tonight of various kinds, some related to this virus, others related to other health issues or mental health issues, loss and sorrow and bereavement and addictions, and various things which blight our human lives. Lord, be merciful to them, we pray, and teach them your ways. And, O oh Lord, we ask that any tonight who uh, mourn the passing of loved ones in these recent days uh, will know of your own comfort. We pray that you would still all our hearts, O oh Lord, Whatever our experiences may be in these times, still our hearts to know that you are God, and that as you are God, so you know, as we cannot know, those things which are good for us. We ask your blessing for our homes, our families, our teachers, our schools, our hospitals and care homes, all the work in our communities, the undertaker, his staff, all those who are with us at such vital times, in our need and in our experience, Lord, we pray for them. We ask that you would continue to bless and uphold them. We pray that you bless our leaders at this time in the nation. O Lord, guide them, we pray, whatever their thoughts may be about eternal matters, whatever they may be in their relationship with you, you have called us to, to pray for them. We do so again tonight and ask that you would give them guidance and wisdom above themselves, above the uh, guidance and the advice that they receive of a humankind. O oh Lord, lead them into your truth and by your truth. Give them to be made wise unto salvation. Remember then, O oh Lord, all the kingdoms of the world. Turn many to righteousness, we pray at this time. Hear your people as they pray to you, as they appeal to you to come to intervene, to provide for us, Lord, a way out of this crisis. We know from your word that so many times in history you brought people to the point where they realised only the Lord could save them and deliver them and open a door for them into safety. And so we pray that that may be our experience too. And we pray, O oh Lord, uh, that you would continue to provide for us the rich things of gospel, spiritual life during these times. Hear us then, we pray, and continue with us now and pardon our sin. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, children, tonight we're uh, looking again at the I Am sayings of Jesus. This is the second one we started last time. 
uh, looking at the I am sayings of Jesus. And tonight we're looking at the saying that Jesus uh, uh, gives us in chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we know at this time that as Jesus was speaking these words, we find in verse 20, uh, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, a part of the temple known uh, in those days as the treasury. And we know from some records that uh, one of the features of uh, this particular time and uh, uh, part of the temple was a huge, huge light, something like a giant candelabra or like a giant chandelier, you might say, uh, hanging there in the temple. And we're told from historical records that the light of it was so, it was so big and so powerful in the light of it, so much light came from it, that it shone out into the streets of the city of Jerusalem. And you can imagine Jesus uh, at that time speaking these words, everybody conscious of this great light in the temple, shining out onto the town, onto the city, onto the streets there around them, and Jesus speaking up saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now Jesus knew that all of us, and we learn this from uh, this part of his word and elsewhere too, that one of the things that's happened to us when we rebelled against God as you find in Genesis chapter 3, is that we became darkened. We became dark in our souls and in our minds and our understanding. And so we need the light that Jesus brings us, that Jesus is, to shine into our hearts. For light to be newly created there, so that we will know the light of God's truth. And you see what he's saying, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness. Now, it's interesting, I'd chosen this one before um, this morning service led by Kenny I, and he spoke about following and following Jesus. And here we are on the same, uh, the same emphasis here in terms of Jesus being the light of the world. He's saying, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, he's saying, follow me, put your trust in me, and you will have the light of life. I will give you light instead of the darkness that's in your soul as a sinner. I will give you the light, you see, he's saying the light of life, the eternal life that only Jesus can actually give us. And you know something quite wonderful along with that? It's not just the fact that he will give us light so that we will have light then in our souls. We will have an understanding of ourselves and of God and of our, our need as we read the Bible, that light of his truth will keep shining into our hearts. It's not just that. The fact is that Jesus, by following Jesus, Jesus actually makes us lights that will be like himself. And when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In other words, every person that comes to know Jesus by following Jesus, by placing their faith and trust in Jesus, by having Jesus as their Savior, Jesus makes them lights. And the world that we live in, the world of darkness, of sin that we belong to, needs light. How does God provide light? Well, not just through giving us the Bible, not just through giving us to belong to his church, but in making his people to be lights, miniatures, if you like, of Jesus himself. The light of the world makes us to be light. In fact, he spoke in Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 5 about Jesus, and uh, Jesus spoke there to uh, the people then in the Sermon on the Mount, that he was in fact making them, and made them, you are, he said, the light of the world, um, where he said um, in chapter 6 of Matthew, um, uh, sorry, chapter 5 of Matthew, where he actually said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Now you have it there in verse 14 of Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when you live as a Christian, whatever age you're at, you children, as you live as Christians who love God, who love the word of God, what's happening is that you're giving out light to those around you to see the light of God's truth in you. It's such an important thing for us to do. Let your light, he said, shine before other people so that they too may come to glorify God through your witness. Now let's say the Lord's Prayer once again together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our second reading is the passage we're going to look at tonight, and it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll begin now reading at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been this far off, and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know, and to search out, and to seek wisdom, and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly, and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And as we turn to this passage tonight, we pray that God will actually lead us through this passage and uh, bless it to us as his own word of truth. Now, I want to confess immediately that this is a difficult passage. It was a real challenge and yet a privilege and a delight to try and study it in order to present it to you this evening. Uh, there's a great benefit in taking a book of the Bible and working your way through it, not necessarily verse by verse, by verse or theme by theme, but just taking a book like Ecclesiastes. But of course, 
anyway, the downside of that is you, you come to passages which are really difficult and you struggle through them. Although having said that, you still benefit from that because you realize that uh, you need God himself to guide you and to teach you uh, through such passages of his word. And there are certain things that we can say of passages like this that are somewhat difficult um, and indeed aspects of them really beyond a proper grasp of what they're saying or certainly not not have a certainty about some of the verses and what they mean. But you're always looking for, let's say, a thread running through a passage, uh, a thread that works its way through the various verses of a passage and indeed there is a thread here. You can see the thread here is actually wisdom. And if you look at verse 10, in fact it's mentioned before that we saw last time, he speaks about wisdom and of the wise. And at verse 10 there, we didn't look at verse 10 last time, but he's saying, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask that. In other words, he's actually saying what we always ourselves say, um, it's not as good now as it used to be. The old days were better. Uh, it was better um, in, in the church's experience 20 years, 40 years, 50 years ago. And what God is teaching him here is not from wisdom that we say that, because actually, in some ways, these days are better than they were. And you're always going to find that. We have a tendency to look through what's usually called rose-tinted spectacles as we look to the past, as if everything then was better than it is now. And here is Solomon, or the writer, if it was Solomon, um, saying, it's not from wisdom that you say this. Why were the former days better than these? Because there's always good and bad in every generation. And so the wisdom that he mentions there then runs through the rest of uh, the chapter. And what you find is that he talks here about the benefits of wisdom. And of course, wisdom, um, wisdom is not human ingenuity. Uh, it's not just having a, a great intellect. Um, wisdom is describes the life that follows God's truth, that accepts God's truth and applies that to life and therefore looks at all the situations that you come across in your life and your experience from the perspective of God's truth being your guide. That is what makes us wise. And the wisdom that he mentions here as he works through the chapter is a wisdom that has many benefits. In verses 11 and 12 there, it's good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. In other words, he's saying if you have an inheritance, you come into the possession, let's say, of great wealth or, or uh, property or real estate. If you don't have wisdom, you can very easily squander it. So wisdom is an advantage. It protects you um, and your life. And it, uh, it's something that actually gives you uh, a very considerable advantage over people who are not guided by the truth of God and therefore are not wise in that sense. But then you see, wisdom has its limitations and that's what he also includes in these uh, verses. Uh, verse 23, for example, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. He's searching for wisdom, for the meaning of life, for a purpose to life. But he said, it was far from me. He said, that which is, has been this far off and deep, very deep who can find it out in other words he's saying i tried to apply the wisdom i had i sought more wisdom i looked to grow and increase in my wisdom and still i'm forced to come to the point where i have to say my wisdom is limited i can't understand everything even as someone who relies on god to teach me and so wisdom good as it is has its limitations and that is especially the case when wisdom meets with God's sovereignty. When wisdom meets with God's sovereignty. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And if you hang on to that verse, we'll take it with us into the rest of the chapter. And we'll look at this under two main headings tonight. First of all, keeping in mind wisdom and the sovereignty of God we'll first of all see how this passage shows that wisdom accepts the sovereignty of God, or it is through wisdom, through being taught by God's truth, that we come to accept his sovereignty. Wisdom accepts the sovereignty of God. Secondly, um, wisdom acknowledges 
the sinfulness of man. Numbers 20, especially, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, however wise you're going to be, and however much you may come across someone much wiser than yourself, that man's not going to be perfect. That woman's not going to be perfect. They're still going to be sinners in some respect. And that relates to some of the things we'll find in, in some of the verses. Now, I'm not going to look at all the details. And as I say, there are some verses that are really very difficult to know exactly what the writer meant. But let's look at wisdom and how wisdom accepts the sovereignty of God. And that's through, firstly, in God's arrangement of life. Let's just read verses 13 to 15. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That is God's arrangement, he's saying, of human life, as we find it, as we look at things under the sun. Now, when he's saying here, uh, who can make straight what he has made crooked, the emphasis there is not so much on something that's sinful, uh, something that's morally corrupt, um, when he speaks there, using the word crooked there, as uh, a word which can mean just having something twisted or turned around or put upside down. And what the writer is dealing with is really the, the twists and the turns of life, the things that affect everybody, whether we're Christians or otherwise. There are certain common experiences in all human life. And what he's looking at as he's trying to observe and grow in his wisdom and find something of a meaning and a purpose to human life, what he's saying is, well, God has actually made the one as well as the other. There are certain things that are straight, certain things that are twisted and turned. The ups and downs of life, you might say. The joys combined with the sorrows and accompanied by the sorrows. As we go through life, that's what we're very much aware of. It's not all plain sailing. It's not a level path. There are twists and turns and ups and downs. But they're God's arrangement, he's saying. God has made the one as well as the other. You can see how this leads to the likes of Romans 8, where Paul is saying, um, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is really what the writer here in Ecclesiastes is saying. All things have to be taken together. You can't just sift out the bits that you understand or the bits that appeal to yourself or the bits that you find comfort from. You take it all together, the twists and the turns, the crooked and the straight, the things in life that you find in your daily experience. And what he is saying here, consider this. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And, of course, it's the same the other way. Who can make crooked what God has made straight? What he's emphasising is that this is the work of God. This is the government of God. This is the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of God himself. But our wisdom is a wisdom that God gives us to accept his sovereignty, his right to rule these things of life. And along with this emphasis on the straight and the crooked, there's also in verse 15 what you might call an apparent unfairness in God's arrangement. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. It seems to be contrary to even to God's covenant promises in the Old Testament, that if people lived in obedience to him, then the promise was they would live long in the land. And here is the writer saying, well, that's, that's not always the case. So how can I understand this? There seems to be something there of an apparent unfairness. Why is it this way with some and not others? So God's arrangement of life is something that we need wisdom for, and we need wisdom so that we can see that it is his arrangement. We cannot actually change what he has himself appointed. We can't make straight what he has made crooked or twisted. The twists and turns of life are not in our control. And we, with wisdom, we accept the sovereignty of God in that. But what is the response to that? 
Well, in response, you find um, in verses 14 um, down through the passage there, especially down verse 14 to 18. Well, he says, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other. In other words, the wise person treats prosperity and adversity alike, knowing that God has made that arrangement. It's the same thing as the crooked and the straight, prosperity and adversity together. God has made the one as well as the other. But you see, what he then says is, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That's a blow to our pride, isn't it? Because what he's really looking for, of course, is a meaning to life, searching for purpose in human life, taking account of all these twists and turns and asking, still asking the question, is there any purpose in this? And his, his conclusion is, yes, there is from God's point of view. This is not a random arrangement. These things in your life and mine, prosperity, adversity, they're not there just as, as if God had just thrown them together any old way. As if he hadn't given thought to this and to your needs and to my needs and to the needs of the people we belong to or the world indeed. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, God's purpose in this arrangement of life is so that knowing we cannot control the future, we will instead depend upon himself. It's very obvious that we cannot control the future. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, let alone what this week's going to bring. We cannot actually foresee very accurately some of the things that take place in the world. And this COVID-19 is a prime example of that. Who could have actually thought and predicted we would be in this situation today? Who could have possibly seen that far to say, this is how it's actually going to be for all of these months in 2020? We don't have that ability. And one of the things we pray for, as we sought to pray for tonight, is that God will make us wise to accept that. Because one of the things we love to have as fallen sinners is a sense of controlling our own lives and controlling our own destiny and being in charge of the things of our daily life and of whatever may follow that. But here is the writer saying, you can't do that. You know you can't do that. You know that that's an impossibility. And because you know that's an impossibility, what is the alternative? Well, it is to depend upon God. You all know, uh, I'm sure, um, Johnny Erickson, Teda, uh, who wrote some wonderful books following her own um, accident through which she was paralysed. And in one of her books, this is what she's saying. I came across this quote really and it fits in with the point we've just been looking at. Um, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. The day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is what she says. Only God is capable of telling us our, what our rights and needs are. Only God is capable of telling us what our rights and our needs are, because only he knows them perfectly. Therefore, she says, you have to surrender this right to him, the right to control your own life, the right to know what's good and what's best for you. When it's true that you cannot control your own life, you have to surrender the right. You have to surrender the desire to do that to God himself. And isn't that what we do when we hand our life over to Jesus? When you come to realize that at whatever point of life you've come to realize it, that you just cannot manage your life. You cannot be the manager of your own destiny. You can't even manage tomorrow, neither can I. So you hand it over to Jesus who can and who does. You give your life into his hands. You think of him feeding the multitude of the 5,000 with the tiny amount of bread and fish that he had to begin with. No wonder the disciples were amazed. Where are we going to get enough to feed this multitude? Bring them, he said, here to me. Bring these resources to me. 
And when they put them into Christ's hands, what did he do with them? He multiplied them so that he fed the 5,000 and there was all that much left over as well, the 12 baskets full. Now only he can do that. But the thing is, he can do that with your life and mine too. You hand that over to him in adversity, in prosperity. And you know, sometimes we think that it's far more difficult to handle adversity than it is prosperity. It's not actually. It's a very, very difficult thing to be wise when you've got plenty. And what God is saying to us here is, consider the work of God and consider it in a way that accepts his sovereignty. So they treat prosperity, the wise treat prosperity and adversity alike. But in responding to the, the, the sovereignty of God, they also do this. They avoid two extremes. In verses uh, uh, 15 to 18, we find the, uh, the writer doing this. I have seen everything. He says, a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, that's something you come across every day. Why should, well, let's take the example of, an example of, let's uh, imagine a young Christian mother who has young children and she dies of cancer. And you find a hardened criminal who has never regretted anything in his life, who spent most of his life in and out of jail, and that person continues well into ripe old age. Why? Why should the there be such a difference between a righteous person who dies young and a sinful person who goes on living in his uh, in his unrighteousness in his sin in his evil doing how do you respond to that well by avoiding these two extremes because the first possibility is that you be overly righteous in other words i think what he's saying here is that one of the possible responses to what he's setting out in this scenario is that we would then say to ourselves, well, the one thing I'm going to do above everything else, in order to be really uh, approved of by God, in order to meet with God's favour, I am going to be super righteous. I'm going to be as righteous as I can possibly be. I'm going to look to being righteous more than anything else. And what he's saying is, don't do that. Because that leads to self-righteousness that's what the pharisees did didn't they? didn't they in jesus day they weren't satisfied with having the ten commandments they added all their own rules and regulations along with these and condemned people who broke their rules and their regulations even though sometimes they themselves weren't even keeping the ten commandments in other words they were trying to be super righteous better than everybody else putting themselves on a pinnacle of righteousness that's not what life's about. Now, this doesn't conflict with pursuing holiness and seeking to, um, to, to live a holy life, of course. But in doing that, as uh, verse 21 or verse 20 puts it, we have to come to the point where we say we cannot make ourselves super righteous because we're still faced with the problem of sin. There isn't a person in the world that is so righteous that they never sin. You see what it's like when you focus on yourself, when you focus so much on yourself and your attempt to be super righteous, not only do you actually end with self-righteousness, but you also are in danger of entering into perfectionism, which has always been a problem in the church. Perfectionism. Well, here is saying your response to this kind of thing that you see in life, not to be overly righteous or to make yourself too wise because you're always going to have limitations on the other hand don't be overly wicked neither be a fool when you know that this is the case that you can't understand life that you find these anomalies in life these discrepancies in life these differences the crooked and the straight don't go to the other extreme and just throw it all away and say well i'm just going to live my own life i'm going to just live as i please I'm going to follow the ways of pleasure and of sin. Whatever God says, whatever the church says, whatever the gospel says, that's how I'm going to live my life. Nobody's going to tell me whether it's wrong or right, sinful or righteous. I'm just going to do it and forget about anything, trying to be righteous or holy or any of that stuff. What do you say? Don't be overly wicked. Neither be a fool. 
That's the foolishness of the human heart that says, well, it's impossible really. And anyway, I find a lot of things in these Christians that I can criticise. I can see things that are inconsistent in their lives. They claim to be God's people, but look at the sin in their lives. Look at the things they're doing, which really they should not be doing. You know that reaction, don't you? You know that kind of um, view that the world takes. But here he's saying, and it's not actually at all a balance between just a little bit of righteousness and a little bit of, of sinfulness. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, don't do too much in the way of righteousness, but don't do too much in the way of sin or evil either. What he's saying is, be true to God. Follow his word and his wisdom and his truth. Be wise in the way that he himself would have you to walk. By complying, by loving his law. In other words, the fear of God, we've seen it mentioned here as well. The one who fears God shall come out from both of these extremes. They won't be taken in by these extremes. The fear of God keeps you in the right path. And remember, the fear of God is not being afraid of God. That's not what it means. It means having the kind of respect in love for God that wants to actually live the way that he sets out for you. What he's saying is wisdom accepts the sovereignty of God. Accepting the sovereignty of God means accepting the straight and the crooked in the arrangement that God has of our lives. We treat prosperity and adversity alike. They're all arranged by God for us. They're both arranged by God and all that's within them. And we avoid these two extremes. You don't go to the extreme of super-righteousness or the extreme of just forgetting about it altogether. You just give your life and your mind and your heart to Jesus and let him lead you and follow him and his sovereign control. The second thing, more briefly, wisdom acknowledges the sinfulness of man. And it's a sinfulness, firstly, he mentions, that's universal. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And he adds to that, verse 21, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others yourself. In other words, what he's saying is, there's such a universal sinfulness, a sinfulness that applies to each and every individual, every human individual. Even the best Christian, the best saint tonight on earth is actually still affected in some ways by sin. And uh, what he's saying in verse 21 is be careful about this. Our tendency is to make requirements for others stricter than we would have for ourselves and we've all been there we condemn sin in other people and then we realize ah but i'm doing the same myself we condemn pride in other people we don't see the pride in our own hearts as clearly we condemn people for being such and such and then we look into our own hearts and say well i'm not any better and this is what he's saying don't take to heart all that people say about you, lest you hear your servant cursing you. See what he's saying? The picture is of a master who has a servant and he overhears the servant saying bad things about the, the master. And so he dismisses him. Say, well, that's it. Get out. I don't want you in the servant anymore. But your heart knows many times you have cursed others. You've done the same yourself and nobody's dismissed you. So let's be careful how we actually think of others, speak of others, conclude about others. Because there's a universal sinfulness in which we are all implicated, even though God forgives our sin. He doesn't remove it entirely from our daily experience. The second thing in uh, acknowledging the sinfulness of man is what we can call seduction by folly. Seduction by folly. Verses 26 uh, there to 28. He said, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, the way things are arranged, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death 
the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God, he escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, he's not talking here about a specific woman. It's a picture of prostitute, picture of someone who seeks to seduce others, as you find in prostitution. But when you go to the book of Proverbs, you'll find something very similar a number of times, especially uh, chapter 7 and also in chapter 9. And what he does, what the writer of Proverbs does, is picture wisdom and foolishness or folly as two women. He's not despising women. He's not uh, saying um, that it's because women are what they are. This is why I've chosen them to illustrate. What he's saying is the picture of wisdom is a beautiful, elegant woman that, is, that goes about her business in a wise way. The picture of folly or foolishness is the temptress, the prostitute, the person who actually lives in that immoral lifestyle. And uh, he, he says here, the woman folly in verse 10, chapter 10, sorry, chapter uh, 9 of Proverbs. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of shoal or death. You see what he's doing is he's using the imagery of the prostitute, the woman, the immoral woman, and he's saying that's foolishness. And what he's doing in, in Ecclesiastes here, the writer in Ecclesiastes is doing is when you think about foolishness and you personify that, foolishness that just doesn't take care of life properly, that uh, puts God aside, it doesn't want to uh, actually listen to what God is saying, that wants to live your own life in the way that uh, sinners do. What he's saying to us is, remember, temptation is powerful. That is folly. The woman folly, the picture of folly, the issue that is folly. The powerful thing that folly is, that foolishness is. Remember, Satan is very much behind folly. He's not completely in charge of it, but nevertheless he uses it. And Satan's bait is folly, foolishness, persuading people that they can do without God. And you see, that's what, uh, that's what he persuades. Like this woman here, who's meant this picture of this, this uh, wicked woman, this uh, immoral woman. Um, folly, he says, is like that. And that's true to life. Most people don't end up as drug addicts or addicted to pornography or to sex or to gambling by just having taken it up entirely as in a moment. No, no, you, you begin with a little taste. And Satan says, go on, have a taste. It's not going to harm you. It's not going to do you any harm whatsoever. You can live with it. You can handle it. Whether it's drink or drugs or pornography, sex or gambling that's how it very often begins and it ends up with people getting hooked sadly on these excesses and what uh, Ecclesiastes is reminding us of is that wisdom pays attention to the sinfulness of our hearts and pays attention to the fact that folly at the heart of folly is temptation and temptation will lead you to disaster if you give in to it, if you actually don't follow the wisdom that God sets out for us. And so um, the response of um, the wise person to folly is when folly calls for your attention, when folly calls to you and says, look, come on, eat what I've got to provide. Never mind that gospel stuff. I can give you better than that. You go back to Proverbs 7, and this is what the writer there says. My son, Keep my words, treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. In other words, as you preserve and as you protect your eye from anything damaging it. So he says, my teaching, wisdom, protect it, treasure it.
Bind it, he says, on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from folly, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Here's Ecclesiastes following on there from Proverbs, books that are so filled with practical wisdom. I remember Paul in writing to the Corinthians as well. The Corinthians were notorious for sexual depravity, notorious even then in their own age. And what does he say to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1? He says, Therefore, beloved, having these promises, the promises that God attaches to faithful following of him, to resisting temptation, having these promises, dearly beloved, let us, uh, having these promises, let us uh, then put sin aside. Let us fear the Lord and live in accordance with what he himself would have us to live by. Let us uh, perfect holiness in the fear of God. And so there's the seduction that folly is guilty of. The seduction that you need to avoid. The wisdom that acknowledges and pays heed to the sinfulness of our hearts. But then finally, he, he brings us to the source of the problem. In verse 29, you see, he's saying, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they, that's human beings, they have sought out many schemes, many schemes for themselves. There's a clear link, of course, there to Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, especially, uh, the creation and then the fall of man. But what he's saying here is, God did not make man sinful. When we were created, we were not created as sinners. God made man upright. In other words, for all that you find of sinfulness in our human life and lifestyle, the blame is not attached to God. Many schemes have been sought out by humans. That's what makes the world a sinful place. That's why it is full of darkness and ungodliness. And you can see that in the pattern, even the schemes of the first chapters of Genesis itself. What do you find? You find the woman, first of all, Eve, looking at the fruit of the forbidden tree. And what does it say? She saw that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Yes, human wisdom, replacing God's wisdom. So she took of it. And she gave to her husband. And then you find these devastating words, words that left the legacy of sin on all his descendants apart from Jesus. And he ate. And he ate. That's the moment of darkness entering human experience. That's the moment of sin taking a grip of our human souls. But then as you go on through Genesis, you find that God deals with things in a certain way. Chapter 6, you come to um, God's declaration there that uh, the thoughts of uh, and imaginings of man's heart was just evil continually. And uh, very different the difficult theology, but it says that God uh, regretted that he had made man in the earth. What did he do? He sent a flood. The flood that destroyed the world apart from Noah and those in the ark. Did that cure things? Of course not. Because you go to chapter 11 and after all of the flood and the aftermath has been dealt with, what do you find human beings doing? They're still scheming. What they're doing is, let's build a tower that reaches into heaven. Let's do this so that we won't be scattered on the face of the earth. Let's actually have this scheme to protect ourselves. That's the fallen human heart. That's fallen human thinking. That's lack of proper wisdom. That is the folly that lurks in our souls. Let's do it without God. That's the folly of our present society, by and large. That's the folly of worldly thinking. That's the folly of uh, that says, listen to what I have to say. Folly is, is, is appealing to us today. You can do it without God. You're better doing it without God. Religion's just a sham especially the Christian stuff. Well, here is wisdom for us. God made man upright, 
that they have sought out many schemes. The root of the problem is in our own souls. And that's why we need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. Now then, just to close, how do you get from here to Jesus? Where is the line? Where is the connection? We always try to look for one, even if Jesus isn't specifically mentioned. Where do you have a line from here to Jesus? Well, think of Jesus in terms of God's arrangement of his life. God the Father arranged the life that he would live in this world and he came willingly into that life and took it. And that wasn't a straight life. It had the crooked, the twists, the turns, the ups, the downs. And Jesus lived that life. And he accepted that life. He accepted the will of the Father for that life. And what do you find in Gethsemane? You find in Gethsemane, Jesus prostrate on the ground. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup, this most twisted of cups, this most agonizing of cups, this death that he had to face on the cross, that he had to die on the cross, that he had to accomplish on the cross. What is he saying when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. He is saying, Father, is it not possible and if it is at all possible, straighten it out for me. Don't leave the twistedness of death in it for me. If it's possible, can it not be straightened a bit? And of course the response, the answer to that is no, not now. It will be straightened for Jesus when he takes his place again at the Father's right hand and sits there having accomplished everything he came to do. The road is now straight. There are no twists and turns left in it. He's done it. He's accomplished it. And that's how it must be for you and for me as well in following him. The same principle of accepting the sovereignty of God, of acknowledging the sinfulness that we ourselves have, but also accepting that as God is working in our lives, what we're seeing at the moment is just a little tiny bit of the embroidery with which he is making up the tapestry of your life and mine. You're seeing it from beneath. You're seeing it with all the threads hang loose. And you can't see the other side where the proper embroidered pattern is being created by God. But one day you'll see it. And Johnny again puts it this way. We will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? We will see how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance of our life into a pattern for our good and his glory. Amen. May he bless his word to us. We're going to conclude now singing Psalm 93. Uh, Psalm 93 in the uh, Sing Psalms version on page 123. Uh, and we're singing this time to the tune Bishop Thorpe. The Lord is king, his throne endures majestic in its height. The Lord is robed in majesty, and armed with strength and might. And so on to the end of the psalm at verse 5. Your royal statutes, Lord, stand firm. Unchanging is your word. The Lord is king, his throne endures. The Lord is king, his throne endures. Majesty. Oh, my. 
Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen. Thank you so much again for joining with us in worship tonight. I trust that by the Holy Spirit's blessing, God's word was blessed to your soul this evening. And I pray that God will keep you all safe and well during these difficult days. Thank you.